Good morning. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with all of you this morning. I think that the best place to create a framework for what I feel led to say to you today is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Now here's what I want to do. I, I want to pull one fundamental question out of this text. And then I want to compel you to consider all of the implications of this one question. And then I want to ask you to ask it of yourself. And in directing this question to yourself, I want you to get a glimpse of who you are and what God can do through you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Now, before we read the text, I want to put some flesh on this question and breathe a little life into it. And to do that, I want to tell you about Eddie. In, uh, in my book, An Intimate Collision, Encounters with Life in Jesus, I wrote about Eddie. And among other things, Eddie has cerebral palsy. Eddie is a quadriplegic, which simply means that he has no use of his arms or his legs. He's pretty much a mangled mess of bone and skin sitting in a wheelchair. Eddie's cerebral palsy is so extensive and the neurological damage is so profound that he has no use of his vocal cords so he can't speak. His entire body is constantly racked by tremors, so his arms and legs are spastic and they're always shaking, even when he's sleeping. He can't swallow, so all his food is pureed and spoon-fed to him. When I met Eddie, he was 57 years of age. Never had a job, never had a relationship, He'd never written his name or ridden a bike or used a TV remote or climbed a tree or used a telephone. He can't hold a rose in his hand or say I love you or any other word for that matter. Eddie, he'll never ride a roller coaster or move a chess piece on a chessboard or bake cookies. He can't dress himself. He can't take himself to the restroom. He has no idea what MapQuest or Google is because he can't use a computer. Eddie has spent and will spend the entirety of his life strapped in a manual wheelchair with his spastic, pencil-thin legs velcroed in place on two worn footrests and the trunk of his body velcroed to his backrest. That's Eddie's life, and that's Eddie's future. He has no hope of doing any of the thousands of things that all of us do every single day without even thinking about it. He will live and he will die in that wheelchair. That's the sum total of his life. Eddie lives in a facility for the handicapped. And in that facility, he has a tiny 10 by 12 foot room. And if you ever walked into his room, you would notice two things. One is a tattered Bible on his nightstand that has been loved by his thin spastic hands. And the second thing you'd notice is a small cross made of two simple sticks that hangs on a white wall that has nothing else on it except this simple, crude cross. It's that Bible and that cross that defines the crumpled mass of humanity that sits in that wheelchair. Those two things make Eddie remarkable. Eddie loves to read that tattered Bible. Many times he would motion me to put his glasses on that spastic head of his and secure them with this headband so they wouldn't be thrown off. And this crumpled mass of a man would spend hours reading his Bible. 
He can't turn the pages, so someone would have to do it for him. And if there was no one there to do it for him, he'd spend hours on the same page. It didn't matter much to him because all he wanted to do was read his Bible. Look at that simple cross on that empty wall and read more. All night long. Well, one day I walked into his room and in one of his thin, spastic hands, he held a quarter and a nickel. 30 cents. I had no idea what the 30 cents was for or what Eddie wanted. But after a few moments, I figured out that he wanted to give it to me to give to the church. A gift to the church consisting of a quarter and a nickel. For a handicapped guy entirely dependent on disability, for a guy who's been robbed of most anything that we would call life, for a guy who has next to nothing and will live out his life with next to nothing, I found that impressive. And I found it incredibly difficult to take that 30 cents from him. But I did. And then I left. But the whole thing kind of fell together for me as I was leaving the facility that day with Eddie's 30 cents rolling around in my pocket. You know, I think you all know that at times in life you have those moments. that You, you can't quite describe them except that you clearly know that you need to do something other than what you're doing. And walking through the parking lot, I knew without question that I needed to go back into the facility and pull Eddie's financial file. I had no idea why I needed to do that other than I was supposed to do it, so I did. And in pulling the ledger, I opened to Eddie's account, and I ran my finger down the page to the line that indicated the total in Eddie's account. It was 30 cents. After the billing from the facility and a few small articles of clothing, his disability check had been whittled away to 30 cents. The guy had cashed out his entire account for God. I stood with that ledger in my one hand and a quarter and a nickel in the other, and I found myself awash in the wonder that sometimes pops up in this journey that we call life. Here's a guy who'd been robbed of the use of his body, his voice, of opportunity, and the dreams and the hopes, and all of the millions of things, both large and small, that we take for granted every day. Essentially, Eddie was robbed of his life, yet he sat in a worn-out wheelchair in a tiny 10 by 12 room with a crude cross on an empty wall, reading his Bible and worshiping God, and now this guy was emptying his account. So I walked into his room with this ledger in one hand and his 30 cents in the other, and I said, Eddie, what are you doing? Do you know that this is all you have? Do you know that? And this remarkable man knew that I'd be back asking that exact question. With that obvious look on his face, he smiled at me, leaned back in his wheelchair, and began to simply laugh. And when Eddie laughed, as spastic as that laugh was, his room always lit up, and I am convinced that God always laughed right along with him. Then he raised a spastic hand and motioned me out of his room. And I can remember putting my arm on that bony, spastic, trembling shoulder of his and saying, Eddie, you are a remarkable man. Eddie, Eddie is a life that's lit. He's a flame that's burning for God. If anyone has reason to be bitter or angry or resentful or hateful, he does. 
He has every reason to be a light snuffed out by cerebral palsy and all the things that CP has done to him. But he's not. Eddie is a light that unashamedly shines right through the worst, most desperate of handicaps and brilliantly shines right in front of every person he encounters. His light is lit. And the impact is unbelievable. Marianne Elliott wrote, It seems to me that we can never give up longing and wishing while we are alive. There are certain things that we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger for them. Despite an irreparable handicap that tied the man to a wheelchair and robbed him of all of the stuff that you and I so readily have at our disposal, Eddie hungered to live. And with all the impossibilities that his handicap wrapped around him, he hungered to live, and he did, and he does. He is a light that is lit, brilliantly lit. And so my question to you is very simple, and it's simply this. Are you a lamp that's lit? Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 reads, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So let's begin at the beginning and ask the first question that needs to be asked. Are you a lamp that's lit? And Matthew chapter 5 talks about being a light but we might want to first ask the fundamental question, am I lit in the first place? How many of us are lit and ablaze? You know, we're all lamps, every one of us, but how many of us are lit and burning and casting light because it's one thing to be a lamp and it's quite another thing to be lit. If you walk through life being a lamp that's not lit, you will have a diminished life and you will add to the diminishment of those around you. And that is tragic. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw was interviewed by a reporter who asked him, Mr. Shaw, if you could live your life over and be anybody you've known, any person from history, who would you be? And I want you to listen carefully to what he said. George Bernard Shaw said this. He replied, I would choose to be the man George Bernard Shaw could have been, but never was. Will that be your commentary on life? When the end comes and the years are dwindling, will you say, I would choose to be the man I could have been, but never was? George Bernard Shaw is a lamp that by his own omission was never lit. Eddie was a life entirely robbed, but entirely lit. And if he, in his condition, can be that and do that, so can you and so can I. Neither do people put a lamp and put it under a bowl. You all of you, all of you are lamps. And the question that I have for you this morning is, are you a lamp that is lit? So think about this. Is it unreasonable to think that the sum total of whatever you are is far greater and significantly grander than you dare to think? Have we been lulled into a sleepy view of ourselves that barely scrapes the surface of who and what each of us really is? Is it possible 
that we never seize God's promises and God's power because we don't think that we'd ever really be much of anything anyway. In the book of Judges, Gideon is facing a mammoth enemy. This guy, this guy is brutally outnumbered, and he has virtually no resources to face what he's up against. Totally outnumbered. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, God says to Gideon, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? So did you hear what God said there? He said, go in the strength that you have. Take what you've got and go. Gideon was in the least clan of the least tribe of the nation of Israel. He was the nothing of his nation, the nobody, the totally inconsequential person that would live and die without having any real bearing on anything. He was a farmer out plowing some irrelevant field in a far corner of nowhere. And God said, go in the strength that you have and save this nation. Just take what you've got and go. And with the little bit of nothing that Gideon had, he was sent out to save Israel out of Midian's hands. It was absolutely a totally impossible mission that was made totally possible because God sent him. It was all about what God was going to do and not about what Gideon couldn't do. What are the unconsidered possibilities of being a lamp that's lit? Listen to these promises from Scripture. I can do everything who Christ who gives me strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. God said, I will strengthen you and help you. You see, it's not about us. It's about what God does through us. And if it's truly not about us and it's truly about God, then what are the possibilities? What are the possibilities of a life surrendered and released to God? What are the possibilities of being a life that's lit? And so my question to you is, are you a lamp that's lit? Someone once said, even an idiot can count how many seeds are in an apple, but only God can count how many apples are in a seed. So how much potential do you have? What's the extent of what you are capable of? How many apples are in the seed which is you? I'll tell you how many. More than you can imagine. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Are you a lamp that's lit? And if not, when are you going to do something about that? Now, let's talk about the fear of being lit. Fear. What if? Just what if you could be a lamp that's lit? And what if in being a lamp that's lit, you could, in reality, change your world? What if by some wild coincidence, you're a lamp of proportions that you could not have imagined? What if, just what if, God has designed you with potential that if untapped, can transform your world? What if? Someone once said, the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Do you understand that this statement, made by Jesus, takes any limits that you have imposed on your life and your thinking and your dreams and effectively erases them? Do you realize that? The impossible, the stuff of sheer imagination, the pieces and the parts of the dreams and the desires that God plants within us is brought squarely within the realm of the possible. Now, if that's the case, and if that's not 
just some nice, far-fetched, dreamy-eyed idea that has absolutely no basis in the real world. If it's really true that the impossible can be brought within the realm of the possible, your life has the potential to go beyond any preconceived boundaries or limitations or barriers. And if we really think about it, that can be terribly exciting, but it can also be terribly frightening. There's a truly bold scripture that I love that's been a huge part of my life and many of my own challenges, and I've, and I've had many of them. It's found in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 2 and 3. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to the power of this as I read it. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 2 and 3, it reads, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. So I want you to listen to the images here. The word go, as used in this verse in the Hebrew, translates to walk. The word level in the Hebrew translates to be straight or even. And the word break in the Hebrew is translated to burst. And the word cut literally means to fell a tree. And so think about the next time the impossible stands before you. God walks before us. And he takes the mountains that we can't possibly climb and he levels them to make them straight and even. He bursts through the obstacles that stand in our way and he cuts down the barriers. That is some pretty aggressive language. But that's what God does. And the reality is this can be frightening. And so my question to you is, are you a lamp that's lit? Or are you too fearful of what being a lamp that's lit might actually result in. You know, I also think we fear the possibilities. How could we not fear the possibility of the impossible because of what we can do? If we grab the concept of the impossible being possible, and if we understand just how much God can impact the world through us, we start to realize both the power to change the world around us and the incredible responsibility that comes with that power. And that can be a frightening thing. It can cause us to fear what actually might be possible. Look, here's what fear does. Fear drives us to stay in comfortable places. Comfortable places keep us captive because they're comfortable. In time, comfort leads to mediocrity. Mediocrity leads to a life of existence. And existence in time leads to death. It's a lamp that never gets lit. John Elderidge wrote, many people find that the dilemma of desire is too much to live with, and so they abandon, they disown their desire. Being a lamp that's lit creates the dilemma that we might actually be a force for change. And being a force for change means that we change. And maybe we'd prefer not to. You know, it's, it's one thing to fear what we can't do, it's an even sadder thing to fear what we can do. And if we fear both what we can and can't do, we will live lives dictated by fear. Sometimes our fear is based in the feeling that maybe, just maybe, God won't show up. Maybe we'll pull ourselves out there and believe in the impossible and God won't be there. He won't show up. 
sometimes things are too marvelous to believe in because we can't visualize how they could possibly happen to us. God's promises seem too big to be realities, so we render them the stuff of nice ideas or novelties or things or wishful thinking that maybe can happen, but certainly not to us. We recognize that we need to believe in things bigger than us, and we need to hold grand things in front of us and hold on to them as we do, but most often we assume that these things could never become anything other than nice ideas. And so if we actually step out and actually believe, and if in the believing these things prove to be nothing more than nice ideas, we lose hope and we damage our view of God and we are fearful to do that. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle and in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he writes this. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mightily on our behalf. We fear that we might expose God as something less than we need him to be or what he says he is. And so rather than risk finding out that God is something much less than what we had hoped or that he doesn't exist at all, we put him in a position where he doesn't have to show up just in case he doesn't. Blaise Pascal said that we are never living but hoping to live. And how sad is that? We never live because we are never brave enough to allow our lives to be lit. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, for, is not fear, for he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We can be a lamp that's lit. We, we can seize the impossible as possible. We can take hold of God's provision of power, love, and a sound mind, and we can cast a tremendous light. We can illuminate the world around us without fear, knowing that it is God who has designed us as lamps. And it is God who has given us the resources to be fully and completely lit. And so the question is, are you a lamp that's lit? I love this. Dorothy Bernard said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. I love that. Susan Jeffers says, feel the fear and do it anyway. Do not let your fear keep you from being a lamp that's lit. Now, you know, there's a cost to not being lit. Francis Lapp wrote, Even the fear of death is nothing compared to the fear of not having lived authentically and fully. The cost of not being lit, of not being that lamp, is that we will not have lived authentically and fully. We will have lived a compromised, marginalized life where we were nothing more than some small piece of what we were originally designed and intended to be. Recent research suggests that less than 10%, less than 10% of all people achieve their potential. That's because we don't want to incur the cost or take the risk of being lamps that are lit, of being the fullness of everything that God designed us to be. You know, we're great at seeing greatness and talent in others. We can visualize all of that for those out there, those who have forged some pinnacle that elevates them in our minds. But to see ourselves as having within us the inherent greatness that made others great, that's a stretch and that's a far cry for most of us. Marcus Aurelius said, waste no more time talking about great souls and how they should be. Be one yourself.
Jesus Christ said, you, you are the light of the world. Not someone else, but you. The relationship of ourselves to the world is one where we impose something on the world, not the world imposing something on us. We're designed and equipped to act on everything around us in a manner that the world is changed by the power and weight of our influence as God uses us. We are power brokers, pushing darkness ever further out as we move outward ourselves. We are not to be challenged by the world, but we are to challenge it. It's an aggressive posture that rests in the reality of who we are in Christ and not who we've thought ourselves to be. Helen Keller said, No pessimist ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed an uncharted land or opened a new doorway for the human spirit. You know, it's refusing to be a pessimist. In accepting who we legitimately are, we can accept that we press on the world rather than it pressing on us. Daniel Bornston wrote, The greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance, it's the illusion of knowledge. The greatest obstacle is the illusion that sin leaves us with, the illusion of inadequacy or incompetence or inferiority or meaninglessness. We assume this to be knowledge about ourselves and we constrict our lives and kill our dreams and ignore God's call and refuse to be a lamp that's lit because we take deception and distortions and lies as fact. And as a result, we never make the remarkable discovery of what God can do with a life that's lit. If we are not a lamp that's lit, we forfeit all of this. That's the cost. If we choose not to be a lamp that's lit, our lives will be about being anemic people. Anemic people we have chosen to be and nothing of what we could have been. The cost of not being lit is simply not being who and what God intended you to be. The cost of a life not lit is a life compromised and a world diminished because we missed what God designed us to be and do. And so the question is, are you a lamp that's lit? Albert Georgie said, discovery consists of seeing what everybody has seen and thinking what nobody has thought. It's not about necessarily seeing anything new. It's about seeing everything differently. Sometimes we think it's about discovering something new, and so our efforts are spent seeking that out, often to no productive end. In reality, it's about seeing the same things entirely differently. It's about seeing the same old stuff and thinking about it in a completely new way. It's a fresh, even radical vision that opens up whole new vistas of understanding about the stuff that's always been around us. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God has things to show you that you've never seen, that you've never imagined, that you've never put together or thought of or deemed possible. And he has those things prepared for you if you're daring enough to see them. For in seeing them, we're compelled to believe in them. And in being compelled to believe in them, it's terribly hard to walk away from them. Do you want to see? Because unless you're a lamp that's lit, you can't see anything because everything's dark. Are you a lamp that's lit? Do you have eyes to see what's, what being lit means 
and how that can transform you and everything around you. You are the light of the world. In closing this morning, I want to take a moment and read a portion of a eulogy that a son wrote for his mother's funeral. This individual, this son, wrote this on a plane on the way to, to his mother's funeral on October 19th of 2007, and he read it at her funeral the next day on October 20th of 2007. You know, I think that uh, we all want to leave a legacy, something that's really remembered. Being a lamp that's lit changes people's lives, and that leaves a remarkable legacy. This woman, this mother, left a legacy and I want to share that with you through the eyes of her son. He wrote the following. Dear Mom, you have left a legacy in our lives, a legacy that embodies integrity, honesty, and tenacity, a legacy that boldly, even brashly believes that God always provides, always cares, always knows, and is an ever-present source from which every need will always be met. You helped us understand that life ebbs and flows, sometimes magically and sometimes cruelly. Life at times invites us to a grand dance. At other times, it seems to slam us to the dance floor, leaving us cringing and bleeding. Life pours into us and then draws out of us. The sun at times warms us and then the hail pelts us. In whatever form it takes, you taught us that God always prevails, that there is always good, that it will always, always work out. And it always did. You left us an understanding that life is more than some daily routine or the achievement of tasks, either great or small. Life is about living well, living with respect, living in a manner that adds rather than detracts. It's not about pretending things are well or being Pollyannish. You taught us that life is about understanding that things will not always be fair, nor will life necessarily be just. But in the hands of God, it will always present us with opportunities to learn about ourselves, to grow, and to add something to those around us. Mom, you are about the stuff of building the lives of three boys and taking care of a husband who was at times a boy himself. It was really never about you. We tried to make it so many times, but you always declined. Rather, it was a selfless investment, pouring your life, your energies, and the fiber of your being into three boys who really had no clue what you were doing until they themselves were adults. Even today, we are unable to fully fathom your sacrifices. I doubt that we will ever fully understand them. We commit to you this day that we will strive to selflessly pour into the lives of others that which you so graciously poured into our lives. We know that any such efforts on our part will pale indeed to the way in which you poured yourself into our lives. Know that we are committed to drawing from the innumerable footprints that you left, the lessons taught and lived and the insights imparted. We will draw from the vast storehouse of memories packed tight with words, mental pictures, ceaseless emotions, and warm thoughts. And we will live that out, Mom, as we have for so many years. We will bring your life to our families, the people who populate our careers, 
and to those we meet in the briefest passing. You will live on, Mom, here as well as in the marbled halls of heaven. You will touch innumerable lives through your three boys who you loved, equipped, nurtured, guided, and guarded. Thanks, Mom. We love you more than simple words could hope to convey. God bless. See you soon. Love your three boys. By the time this man's mom died, most of his mom's friends had already died as well. So had most of the family members. So when they planned his mom's funeral, they didn't expect many people. Yet on the morning of October 20th, over 120 people showed up. People who he'd forgotten about or figured had forgotten about him and his family. 120 of these people filled the room. It was one of the most amazing things he had ever seen. His mom had lived her life as a lamp that was lit, and that left an incredible legacy. That legacy filled that room, and that legacy resonates yet today. Numerous other lives were lit because she was a lamp brilliantly lit, and that's what God can do with a lamp that's lit. Because you see, that woman was my mom. And I was the son who wrote that eulogy at 34,000 feet on an airplane. And I'm the guy that read it the next day at her funeral. Mom was a lamp that was lit. She illuminated my life. And she showed me what it was to illuminate the lives of others. She was a lamp that was lit. And because she was, I can't imagine not being lit. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Do you want to be that? Simon Wheel wrote, the danger is that the soul should persuade itself that it is not hungry. It can only persuade itself of this by lying. Don't sit in this place and lie to yourself. Don't sit and be less than God's design for you. Don't sit here and choose not to be a lamp that's lit. One more thought. In his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, Brendan Manning wrote, Only love empowers the leap and trust, the courage to risk everything on Jesus, the readiness to move into the darkness guided only by a pillar of fire. You see, we can be a lamp that's lit because we have the light of Jesus that enshrouds us. We can be light only because he is light. And if he is light, why would we want to be anything else but that? And so the question is, are you a lamp that's lit? Someone wrote, a flame begins with a single spark that knows nothing else and wants nothing other than to be a flame. And that, that is my prayer for your heart.